Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. LEAP stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving LEAP individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to theleapcast.com right now to subscribe. Welcome, everybody, back to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James, where we talk to leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. Today, I have another awesome, amazing friend who is joining. His name is Al Sawyer. Might go by some other names, which he will share. <laughs> but Al, you and I have known each other for a number of years. Just a genuine uh, person, like uh, the what you do and how you show up for people has just been amazing. And so welcome first. Thank welcome. You. Thank to you. Leapcast. Thanks for being here. And one of the ways I like to start is by what we call your leap story and just sharing like some of the early days, you know, maybe growing up, maybe with family, maybe with, you know, what your family might be or look like and what that was like for you. And then we start early and then we work our way up to the present. And so what, if you were to, say some early beginnings that shaped you or shaped your life, what would it be? First, thank you for having me. And I appreciate everything you do and this platform and what it means to the culture, what it means for people to have an opportunity to see people that may look like them, may represent what they represent or who they are and tell a story how people go from having a dream or, or maybe similar backgrounds is them that they're able to succeed and have a life today that they want and deserve and feel like they deserve. So thank you for that, for sure. Thank and you. what a better person to, to amplify that voice and have that platform. This is so you and I'm proud of you for sure. Thanks man. Appreciate it. So my, my sort of early story, I guess, growing up, you know, I had an interesting, you know, childhood, you know, my, I had a very loving childhood, you know, with a mother and father. I'm a father, heavy disciplinarian, and mother, you know, uber motherly in that way, which works great when when it works and when you have both all those components. And my father, while he was alive, you know, kept us out of out of the way and basically, you know, although we lived in deep um, poverty. And both my mom and dad were both from some very um, deep, you know, generational poverty. But the love and the nucleus that they created within our household, you know, created this sense of, of um, you know, warmth and, and nourishment to grow. And then my um, father basically, you know, passed away when I was 12, which, you know, minus that, that sort of stern fatherly, like, element that he represented just made way for me and my three brothers to kind of take to the streets. And so, yeah, that was a, a sort of turning point moment. Uh, are you, are you saying with all maybe some challenges that were there, your father not being around made it more accessible for you and your brothers to, to go turn to the streets? hundred percent. I think not only accessible, but I think we 
you know, in a lot of ways, you know, again, my father represented, you know, elements that, that weren't necessarily readily available in the culture we found ourselves in outside of the home. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, it was this, you know, kind of pull that basically, you know, we were one way in the house and then another way, you know, out in the streets and expected to actually conform to what that culture, our friends and, and everybody around us were in and represented. So when my father wasn't there, that basically, you know, didn't, that, that balance was completely off and we were completely, there was no impedance for us to go in other direction. And I feel, you know, in hindsight, looking at it, you know, we weren't initially equipped for that. Like, you know, I didn't, I don't have the story about my mother or father ever being on drugs. I've never seen drugs until I sold drugs, you know, that kind of thing, you know, this just wasn't my reality. So what that ended up doing, in my opinion, in hindsight, it made me sort of go that much harder to try to prove myself and say that I had that, that sense of, um, that sense of ability that I really honestly don't feel like that was an innate element to me. I appreciate you sharing that. And that I could see like how, like, you know, like, yeah, this hasn't been my reality. So you could be questioned or at least like people looking at you like, yo, why are you here? <laughs> right. 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 And I'm light skinned. So that don't go over well. <laughs> you know, we're talking back in the early nineties, eighties, early nineties, you know, you're all suspect. light skinned. <laughs> Right. People, people so, are trying to come at you. So you're like, all oh, right, yeah. that's right. Show you. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And again, it's all adaptation, right? The idea is like, you know, we, we adapt to our space and some survival and a lot of things I've learned along the way, you know, all, and all of those things, I feel like I was able to, you know, later on sort of um, transfer to other aspects of my life to actually give me the abilities that I have to, you know, to do the work I do now and have a life I have now as well. And I'm looking forward to getting to that part because you are someone who is multi-talented and multi-skilled. And I can assume that you've used all your life experiences to tie into the work that you do now. Well, and you mentioned like, you know, you and your brothers. So was it like you and your brothers in the streets? Were you like in the same in the same community or were you all in mm-hmm. other uh, separate communities in the streets? Yeah. So, yeah, we were, no, we were all in the same, we grew up in the same house. We were different ages though. You know, my brother was years um, older than me. And so we didn't hang in the same quote unquote circles. But when my father passed away, you know, it was like an explosion went off in our house and everybody had was affected different ways. My father being a disciplinarian he was, he was really, you know, his sense of discipline was, was traumatic in itself, right? Like it was definitely, you know, definitely borders, past borders abuse, right? Like that level, right? right. Now we and call it abuse, right? Yeah, yeah. Now we call it abuse for sure. At the time I was calling it abuse too, but you don't know. That's exactly. Yeah, no, but, you know, you know, my father was old, you know, when he had me and when he had our family, you know, he passed away. In his 60s, and I was 12, you know, so he was old. He was born in 1923. And from what I gather, my father's father was actually born in, in bondage, in, in slavery, in North Carolina. From what I can gather, and his mother, my father's mother, was on a um, reservation, I think a Lenape reservation in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. 
So it's like my father grew up in a really, you know, when he was born, he was one of 10, last of 10, and his father died when he was like eight. So, you know, he had a very tumultuous life. Man, I can only imagine growing up in the 20s and 30s in the South, what, you know, what that meant. So a lot of traditions and a lot of fears was, was, you know, put on us and that, that, you know, yeah. 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 I appreciate that in the context, right? Once again, right, people emulate and the context and time period that they're in or what they think. And, you know, I think what I think you're highlighting that I've seen also is that a lot of it is based also in fear and anxiety, right? Like, and it might not be the best way and it, and it probably is abusive, but if we were to ask the person, why did you do that? It was probably because they were afraid or anxious about something else happening and they just, they went too far. hundred percent. Hundred percent, no question. And then, and then, what is too far, right? It's probably less than what his parents did with him, too, right? Like, so it's all relative, and I think is definitely, you know, if gone, if gone unchecked, you know, and we can talk about it later, but just like in the sense of just like how I parent my children now, you know, yeah, no, um, and 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 elements that I I have to like check myself on about what you know what where, where that barometer is, you know, so. Mm-hmm. And the level of self-awareness that that takes, right? Like the journey that you've been on in your own life to even say, what is the barometer? Because I think sometimes people get to the place of like, I'm doing it better than my previous, the previous generation, but it doesn't mean I'm checking myself. <laughs> and that's in itself a poor barometer, right? Like, you know, because there's levels on it too, right? Like, so yeah, man. yeah, 100%, 100%. Uh, definitely. And uh, we'll probably talk more about that. So so your father's death and loss of your father kind of further pushed you and your siblings maybe down a path which ended up you all kind of going in the streets. How far in the street life, how far did you go? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was that, you know, I was that. I think, um, you know, again, how far did I go? You know, it's interesting because, you know, like I say, my father died at the age of 12. You know, my father being from the, you know, my father's from the South, he's from the South. And, you know, he taught me how to shoot guns when I was five and shotguns, what have you. And that was, you know, that's part of his culture, right? And so, you know, guns was definitely a part of my, was part of my repertoire, what I got into and what I believed in, you know? And, I remember my father dying and I just inheriting his guns, right? That level of it, right? So, you know, so when I went to the streets, I was, oh yeah. When I went to the streets, that was like a, that's a natural inclination. Just like, what's up? And I knew I was always a little bit smaller. Again, I'm light skinned, I'm tribal, you know, people can try me, whatever the deal is, you know, but I was super, you know, like I say, and you got to remember too, again, my mom had never had a job before my father passed away. Never. My mom's a, a homemaker in a traditional sense of homemaking that way, right? So so when my father died, we did bad. We did really bad, like really, really bad. So we were left with nothing. And, you know, it was literally, we lived off charity. Like it was that level. My older brothers was, you know, super errant and, you know, doing their thing, but not necessarily in, in support of the family. It was just literally like almost like a sense of freedom for them. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was, I was way closer to my mom and my little sister. And I basically took it on as like caretaking for them, you know? Yeah. So 
you know, and just to be honest, like, you know, I was celebrated, you know, as the co-tracker, I was celebrated to go out and get money. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't cursed that I would sell drugs or do anything I needed to do to bring money home. That's how bad it was. So there's times if I didn't bring money home, we didn't eat, you know, that kind of thing, you know? So it's like, there was a bigger purpose behind what I did. No glorification, just the facts. And I think what people get it confused, I feel like people think a lot of times the culture of the streets or selling drugs or what have you is a very singular, very insular, like, you know, individualistic approach. But sometimes that's the option, you know, and again, at 12 years old, if you feel like you're the man of the house and you have to provide for your family, what's my options to do, you know, and where I was and what my exposure was, the streets was the option. And I did it as as such, you know, and um, to the point where by the time I was by the time I was um, 15, I had about 30 arrests, like 32 arrests. And at 15, I went to juvenile. Some, someone was shot in my house. I didn't shoot him. It was a girl who got shot in my house. And I came home. I thought it was my little sister. So I'm like, you know, talking to the cops, like saying, hey, you know, this girl, somebody got shot in my house. And I see like these sneakers on the step. That's when I when I pulled up to the house, I seen sneakers on the step look like my little sister and there was blood everywhere. And I was like, you know, talking to the cops and I said, you know, what's going on? They said come down to the station. Um, when I get that when I got down to the station, the girl wouldn't say who shot him and since I was there like making a big fuss or whatever and I wouldn't tell on who actually shot her, they charged me for it. And she got shot in her throat and lost her larynx. And uh she wouldn't testify who did it. So I didn't, I wasn't going to say I did it so or not did it. So I was sentenced to two years in juvenile. I went to a practice up in like Maryville, Pennsylvania. By the time I went to there, like I said, I had over, well over 30 arrests. I had felt like four years in school until that point. And, um, you know, and couldn't read. I uh, had never had a job before. Like, I was dialed into that reading. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't even know. I knew no one that ever went to college, like that level, right? So it wasn't, you know, so going to jail, going to, you know, whatever, it was literally like a change of address. It was not even a thing. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I always stress, too, is just like people, again, there's a thing called middle-class amnesia. Like, a lot of people don't realize, like, the conditions that people are actually in, right? And and what, what fuels what fuels decision making and and choices, right? And exposure is that, right? So the exposure I had was super limited and, and was not built off of anything other than, you know, this very esoteric, you know, kind of subculture that I was involved in. You said two things I want to just Please. highlight. You said that one, it, you know, that folks that engage in activities that sometimes people look down upon or frown upon, people that we might say in the streets dealing drugs or in criminal activity that mm-hmm. we think that it's singular. And I've worked with mm-hmm. so many, in particular, young men and young men of color. Mm-hmm. They would tell me like similar stories of like, no, like if I don't go do this, mom's is not eating right now. Right. Like, or my siblings or my family and the weight of, I have to take care of the family. And at the same time, feel like I have limited options. I might know going to school, but that's a long-term option. And I was just talking to another guest that thought of like, the, not in his own family, that thought of like, no one went to college, right? And then 
graduated college and, you know, got a job, but it's, it was barely paying much compared to folks who were out. So like this thought of like, yeah, I could do that. But realistically, what is going to take care of us now? Because it's in survival mode. And two, I really appreciate you highlighted the, this phrase, middle-class amnesia, because yeah, people do act and then look down and then forget that some people are really making a choice of, do I, does my child eat or do I go to work? Like that is the money that we have right now. And I have to make this decision and how challenging that can be for someone to deal with over and over. Or I just had another conversation about, you know, same day loans or payday loans, right? The start of like, yes, I need an advance, but now I'm going to be caught up in a system where I can never get over and catch up and how we might look down on people for all these things. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate you you highlighted that and how that shaped you and your journey, you know, mm-hmm. where you were at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, at the time, it was not even that I was conscious, right? Again, you know, backing out on a, on a culture that I had adapted to that aligned with what my position in life and my station at that point, you know? Yeah. Um, so you, so you, you, you know, you get charged with this crime, you mm-hmm. go to juvie for two years. What mm-hmm. happens from that point? So I went to juvenile for two years, you know, and yeah, you know, I was, you know, ultimately sent home with a, you know, $7 bus ticket, you know, $7 in the bus ticket, you know, when I came home again, it's, it's that this is the, you know, the split in in logic, you know, whatever logic is built into these systems, being like juvenile system or even correctional institutions. Period. Right. This thought that you know, you dust somebody off and get them, you know, take them out of the way, and then you know, they're equipped to then go back to their environment and actually make good. No. You know, I always refer to it as like you take a bath and putting dirty clothes back on, you know. So it's yeah. like as, as many accolades, as many this and many, you know, whatever I had while I was, you know, in juvenile, complete what they would consider model, you know, student or whatever in that institution. When I came home, you know, my friends gave me drugs and a gun and I was up for 48 hours until I had enough money to, you know, do whatever I needed to do. And that was my life. And that was, that was it. And I, you know, yeah. So I had a son at the time when I went to juvenile, I had a son when I came home, you know, I had a son already when I came home. And, and uh, so it was about, it wasn't just about me coming home and sign up to go to college and do all this stuff. Like, no, they was waiting. Everybody's waiting for Superman. You know, my mom still got the needs. My mom, you know, my family needs me, you know, that kind of thing. So the whole conversation while I was there, if I was talking to my family, it was about, you know, what, what, what I was going to do, what was expected of me when I came home. And again, another point I would like to highlight, again, it's not that because it's not that singular action, a lot of people or a lot of, a lot of plans or a lot of even programs or whatever, it doesn't, doesn't involve the, the whole person, right? doesn't involve the, the external pressures or expectations, you know, not only society has, but your immediate go-to support system, right? People that supported you, you know? And you come home and you can have all these grand plans and that stuff stays in that box you came home with and you get busy, you know, and that's just what it is. And there's, I mean, no, no, you know, it's just, you know, and you're coming home 
you know, behind. So again, the same way as I went into the streets originally without that pre-exposure to, you know, what that level of toughness had to be. So then you overcompensate. Same, no different. When I came home from juvenile, I had to prove my spot again and take my spot back from folks that was in that position. And again, so I was home for, albeit like, I don't know, I came home in like July, maybe August, and, you know, a week before my 18th birthday, I shot somebody. And uh, not even a week. Yeah, I guess it was a week before my 18th birthday. In 1995, someone tried to rob me. And someone I knew, and I shot him. You know, I and um, legit didn't think anything of it. Like it was like again, par for the course. That's the environment you're in. This is what, like, there's a rule that 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 it's hard to articulate to people, but that is legit. Like what happened, and again, to comprehend it or even apply any kind of rules around it, you really got to understand again the brain science around it and and those um, and and how those cultures and adaptations kind of create the rules that you sort of operate by. So yeah, I shot this individual and then was arrested, charged with aggravated assault, first degree aggravated assault. And then ultimately was sentenced to um, eight to 20 years. When I was 17, eight to 20 years in prison. I was sent to greater for prison just right outside the city. Right. Right. So, you know, once again, like, you know, you're highlighted in this, and there's so many people, and I think this can be, we can look at this on multiple levels, right? I think from folks who are dealing with poverty or dealing with like extreme challenges to the levels of loyalty that is embedded and what it means to be disloyal, right? Disloyal to the culture, disloyal to your people, disloyal to your family, to probably like all the way up of like what happens when you feel pressure to perform, and I think that goes to like, you know, entertainers, athletes, CEOs, right? There is a pressure of like, no matter what the situation might be, you have to show up and perform. And right. and it sounds like when you got out of juvie, you know, you got drugs and a gun. It's like, all right, you we are giving you these things. Now go and perform. Or like there's no other option. And how that right. keeps you in a certain dynamic Yep. might be unhealthy to you. Same thing as like if we look at a star athlete who does something for that she or he does something that is harmful to them while they're trying to perform, right? Trying to mm-hmm. get to that level. So now you get sentenced to, you know, a lot of years, I guess, as a, to a prison at 17, almost 18, as an adult. This is that, I would imagine that's, significant right like all these people who are dependent on you and all that pressure that you feel and now you got to be you're locked up yeah what for happened? a long time right. you know and it's just to give an example it just it's hard to articulate to somebody that never did that time or or was sent away that kind of way i mean you know first of all yeah it was it was tough i think um even then it was tough even though i was you know, I thought I was prepared for it. Again, the music I listened to, the you know, I knew everybody. Everybody knew was in prison. I knew no one in college. Like you think I was be, I would be prepared for it. Nothing really can compare, prepare you to have gone to greater for it at that time. You know, it was such a, you know, you, you know, so it's a, definitely you felt your brain um, shifting to this weird sense of of a new reality. 
with new rules and everything governing that. And then just the, even just the uncertainty of what that looks like. Again, I was 17 years old at the time. Eight years was basically half of my life at that time, right? So it's like, I couldn't even remember barely back eight years prior to, and you're telling me that I'm going to be here for eight years, you know? My son, when I had my son, my son's mom, when I went to prison, was 15 years old. Think about that. Yeah. Right? So when I come home and be 25, I've never even talked to a 25-year-old girl at the time. You know, I remember these thoughts, like, right. vividly, like, what do you talk to people? Like, what is it? 25? I'm ready to, you know. Well, anyways, I went to prison at 17. An interesting thing is I still have my psychological evaluation from that, actual, and I want to share it with you at, at some point of that sentence. And, and I feel like that um, it was really, it was really telling how, and again, remember this was in 95. So this is knee deep in, in the uh, predator, what do they call it? Um, super predator zone, right? Of uh, that 94, 95 super predator sort of sentencing guidelines. And I was in that, you know, and it, it's anyways, I, we can talk about that more, but going to prison, since eight to 20 years in prison was serious. And I think I remember the first, you know, interesting story is the first day I got there, I was at Camp Hill and it was taking me to Greater Ford, you know, and these, you know, I'm with folks that I just perceived to, you know, be, you know, as tough as me or tougher than me, whatever they deliver. And the first day I got there to Greater Ford, they put you in this cell, put you in, take, they took us back to E Block and they put you in these cells. But at the time, these were double celled cells. So at Greater Ford, there was almost Excuse me, there was probably like almost 1,600 people on one block. Wow. And you, you say, you know, you think of it, there was probably six correctional officers. And there's well over, well, I mean, I count them, right? But I noticed, you know, there was, you know, yeah, I would put it at 16, uh, roughly 1,600 people on one block. The whole institution had over 6,000 people in the institution. So here I am, 17, just turned 18 walking onto a block and I'm with guys and we have orange jumpsuits on, whatever the deal is. And, you know, it was a super, you know, crazy, surreal experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone. And there's, you know, those guys that was, you know, that I've seen that I thought was tougher than me or just tough, whatever the deal is. And, and, you know, that night, the first night there that we were there, they locked us down for like three days. as like a sort of orientation, but you're on the block and, and one of the guys that was there was, was raped. They came on block with me. He was actually handcuffed to me. And they put him in a cell and took me down, put him in another cell. And, you know, that was really humbling. You know, that was really humbling. I, I fortunately never experienced anything like that my whole time there. But that was a reality. I mean, that was a reality check just because it's not anything about, you know, how tough you are. It's the space and it's the place. And, and you know, this force is bigger than you and just everything. So all I'm saying is that, that's I look at my life as being just fortunate overall. All, all I'm the you know most fortunate person you, you know that I can that I know. I don't know why you know you know a lot of folks, but you just know I'm I'm super fortunate, and not just for that. I mean, just like I just been blessed just overall with just like amazing friends and people that that have kept me and and cared for me and loved me and nourished me even in prison. Right again, at the time I always tell people that the most at that time the most you know, most pious, most responsible men I have ever met in my life, even up until now, 
were in prison, were folks that were sentenced to life for numbers equivalent in prison. Raul had, you know, Dao was before. Dao actually just came home. And a lot of them are coming home now as juvenile lifers. But these folks taught me how to shave and just, you know, what, what appropriateness is, you know. And all of these things of just like, you know, elements that I never got a chance to learn from my father and definitely didn't have the opportunity to learn from anybody on the streets. They yeah. gave me an opportunity to learn things that people I left behind in the streets never, even including my brothers and family, never got a chance to be around men like that in that way. Yeah, you know, and I was thinking about that, this kind of six-year journey that you were on from 12 to 18 from when you lost your father and what you experienced. And, you know, one, I was wondering, like, if, if you could recall, like, what were you telling yourself that kept you going, right? Like, yes, we were talking about, you know, the pressures, the loyalty, but you still had to tell yourself that allowed you to show up or allowed you to outwork other people or allowed you to deal with juvie or being at Greaterford. And so I was wondering, like, what your mindset was during that time. And two, In prison or before? Throughout that journey, I was from the time oh. of losing your dad to juvie all the way up to to being in Greaterford. If you can recall, like, what were you saying to yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of that's a lot in there, right? Before, you know, after losing my father, that was that was weird, you know. Um, and a lot of it went to like protecting my mom and my sister. That was my life, you know. So up until that point, it wasn't, you know, my father was sickly, you know, my father was really sickly. So I always thought of his passing as being a good thing for him because he wasn't suffering anymore. And that's how it was given to me as a child. So I didn't, you know, I miss him and everything and at the time, you know, and everything and still now, but, but it wasn't that kind of difficult. It was more difficult of the pressures that it put on us, right. And on me having to take care of my family that way. When I was in, when I was in prison, you know, it was really tough because Prison was tough, not just generally, just like having to not only survive, but adapt to it. And, you know, and then you come to this realization that you don't want to come back here. I can't, you don't want to come back to prison. And, but at the same time, I've never had a job before. And then that's the other thing too, is like, I'm seeing people that has jobs, you know, older than me, had more life experience than me. They go home and then they come back. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there like, well, there's, these guys are smarter than me. They had it figured out. They had plans. They had family. They understood that family looked out for them while they were there. My family didn't even know how to look out for me. You know, it was like I would go see my mom like once every other year or something to that effect. And we couldn't even call home because my mom didn't have collect on the phone. And it was too expensive, right? Yeah. I had a son and I would call my son like once every other month. And that's because his grandma, who was basically raising him, you know, allowed for me to call. And that five-minute conversation at the time was like $25. So it's like, you know, it, it there was all these impedance to keep you from your family and understanding. But you got to remember too, and again, another interesting piece that is that we don't realize as citizens out here, we don't realize how limited information people in prison have about the world. Yeah. Right? And we're thinking about it, like, you know, I've been doing, you know, we can talk about what I'm doing yeah. recently, Ooh. but just like, a lot of brain science around that is like how, like, you know, specifically like hippocampus atrophy, right? This kind of stuff, right? Around, you know, how your brain shapes to your space, right? And with lack of exposures and given the fact that people in prison have such, myself included, has such a lack of exposure to what a realistic, you know, a realistic 
reentry process would be, you know, you're making plans based off of memory, based off of things that you knew. And it's all distorted after time. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, you know, in 96, I remember vividly, I was sitting in the cell and I was so frustrated because I knew I didn't have, I never had a job. And I was a kid, right? I was probably like 18, 19 at the time. And um, probably 97. And I said, you know, I just I remember thinking that, you know, when I go home, one thing I don't want people to do is actually go home with no, you know, no information. What, what, what's, what's so hard about documenting or, you know, filming something outside, actually put it inside so people can see real time what's going on out there so you can make a plan. And I thought about that when I was 18 and I still have the writings for it, everything, right? That I wrote at the time before even learning film or anything, like anything like that. No ambition to be a filmmaker. I just knew that at that time, there's something I didn't have. I didn't have information to make a realistic plan for when I go home. Every program is inundated, I mean, excuse me, is um, antiquated. And they were, you know, there's nothing. It's really recreational. That's all it is. It's not built on anything. Not setting people up for true success. And, you know, obviously we can go into like some of that is probably embedded in the plan, right? Like, you know, that, you know, and and what it means for people to really have on the outside before they get in real resources and support. And then once they are locked up or in a situation like that, what are the real resources to get them out? Now, I don't want to be naive, right? And you might have a different perspective. There are people who are making some of these choices and are not really trying to be different or that's just maybe how they might think about life. But the majority of folks that I think I've either worked with or have become connections and friends who have been incarcerated at some point they share a more in-depth view of their experience and challenges and desires and hopes and aspirations that sometimes we don't really highlight. And I think that instead of just thinking that everyone who's locked up is a criminal and that's all they want and that's all they do, that's not, that's not even close to the full story. That's true. I mean, I would add to that, though, and, and push back slightly, just on the simple fact that you know, again, you know, we know that people are malleable. And again, you know, people's disposition, worldview, that's adaptation, you yeah. know. So if people feel like, oh, I'm going to be this, I'm going to do that. We got to ask, why do they feel like that? Yeah. Like, yeah. what happened to you, right? Like, and again, what happened to you is obvious. Again, think about how crazy and how your brain, again, just think about how you, how crazy you would have to be to be in an impossible situation and think about all things possible. Think about that. That's not even, that's not even nature. Nature yeah. is adaptation. Nature is adapting to your space. They call it institutionalization, right? And it's the whole piece about yeah. hippocampus atrophy. The idea is like your brain will adapt to a space, whether it's a community where there's no options, no opportunities, you're going to make whatever opportunities that exist there, your opportunities. Because yeah. your brain's not silly. You can try to fix your trick yourself, but you're not going to trick your brain. And you're not going to grab for something that's not there. And if you do try once or twice, the odds is that you're going to yeah. stop. Because, you know, so you almost, so what we're celebrating in the sense, uh, based on what you said, I mean, and I agree that that could be a perception. But if we really unpack that, we're really celebrating people that believed in something that wasn't there. Yeah. So think about how crazy it would have to be for mm -hmm. us to expect people expect people 
to be able to succeed, you got to do something unnatural. Think yeah. about that. When the it's natural true. element, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I always say that the, the people in communities are not resource poor. We're network poor. So the idea is that those communities are quartered off. If you dam up a river, you know, a stream, you know, that stream, that water becomes stagnant. When it's disconnected from, from the greater body of water, it becomes stagnant. And stagnant water stinks. It's dead. And that's what you're seeing, right? So again, you just see someone's like actions and you can tell, like, you don't even have to talk to them. You can tell that they have either a lack of exposure or a lack of, you know, whatever the deal is. So, you know, again, we can talk more about that. But again, I appreciate what you're saying, but I would definitely like, you know, preface that with, with saying that it's adaptation. No, I totally received and agree. And I, I appreciate that you expanding that, right? This thought of how many people, if we were to look in our respective situations, are able to come up with thoughts and ideas really beyond that, right? Like, and so many people, no matter where you are, it's l- most likely limited by what you've been exposed to and what you have experienced. And I could see that in lots of different spaces. And then what happens if your life, as you said, have been kind of quartered off to the place like all you see, experience, does not really show much more than that. And that your future could be dependent upon how do you get the most out of where you are, and regardless of what that might mean for you and and your life. And your perception is truly your reality. Yeah. Right. And it wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't uh, in a lot of times, either by either design or lack of design, mm-hmm. that our environments are what they are. Yeah. Right. That we have ex- access to what we have. And again, one of the biggest things that my elders did for me, and I'll give you a story. I was um, so I was there once I was at Greater for like two years or so, three years, maybe I was stabbed at a um, cellmate, you know, had a, a good friend of mine who was, who was stabbed at my door and passed away. And then I had my celly at the time, my cellmate, someone that shared the cell with me, stabbed me in the middle of the night, stabbed me 11 times in the middle of the night. You know, I didn't think I was going to come home, right? So my thing was, again, remember I had a son at the time and I could barely talk to him. At the time I had years left, I had like six years left to go on my sentence. And it was tough. So the idea was like, how do I convey myself and who I am to my son and my son's at home. And that was paramount for me. So inside the institution, it was just um, like internal video crew that walked around with these big VHS cameras and like old mm-hmm. technology kind of thing. And my thinking was, let me just get on this video crew. And if I get my whole plan was, I'm going to get on the video crew, grab, get, the, get a hold of the camera, use the camera to like video myself and send videotapes home to myself. Well, there was no openings on the video crew because everybody on the video crew had a life sentence or numbers equivalent. And um, Pennsylvania, Greater had the biggest, Greater Ford had the biggest lifer population of anywhere in the state. Pennsylvania had the biggest life population in the, in the country. Wow. So, you know, but I talked my way onto the crew. They allowed me, I was the youngest one, didn't have a life sentence, and they allowed me to wrap wires, right? I was the best wire wrapper <laughs> you can imagine. I'm still like a... a I mean, look, I that. think that's what you do. You take whatever you got, you're going to be the best at it. I love that's it. That's right. Especially if the mission is, you know, to get there. So I did, and I was wrapping wires. I was the first one there, last one So the one day, there was this artist that was a painter named Lily A. She has the founder of the Village of Arts and Humanities in Philly. He was coming into the institution and they asked 
and she was coming into the institution and she had a film crew coming with her to document her work. And the filmmaker, his name is Glenn Holston, beautiful Philadelphia filmmaker. And he was coming into the institution. Well, they wouldn't allow Glenn to bring his film crew with him. They said, you can film Lily A coming into the institution, but you couldn't film her. You can't use your video crew. You had to bring you had to use the video crew that's there in the institution. He said, well, there's no videographers here. Like, this is, there's video crew. But that's what you got. So they asked us, did anybody want to film for Glenn? And nobody wanted to. And I was the only one that wanted to. I said, man, this is my opportunity. So I said, all right, I'll do it. And I showed up. And, you know, long story short, for six years, Glenn came to Greater Fort Prison. It was an hour and a half each way drive for six years. Some weeks he came three days a week. Like, I currently don't see my mom that much, right? Like, seriously, right? So the idea is that, do you believe that, you know, Glenn was not only a renowned filmmaker, but he taught at the University of Arts and and a couple other places, film. And he was teaching me film, you know, at the same pace he was teaching his students. Wow. Although I had reading reading issues. The, the thing was, and if I say that story, then it sounds pretty cut and dry, right? Like you got this guy that took a, you know, took a fancy to somebody that was in, in a penitentiary and basically invested in them and just like, you know, long on goes the story. Well, that's not even the story. You know, the story is for real, is that I didn't want nothing to do with Glenn. I didn't want nothing to do with going down and, and learning film from Glenn. I didn't, you know, I did it first, but... Once I met with Glenn, it was such a, Glenn is not, doesn't look like me, isn't from where I'm from. There was a cultural disconnection, right? You got to remember somebody like myself that institutionalized. I didn't even know how to like barely communicate with somebody outside, let alone outside of prison, but just outside the culture. Yeah. So I felt like I was rough. I felt like I was just like abrasive and didn't know how to communicate. And it took my elders that, and so it got to the point after one or two kind of meetings with Glenn, I felt like I was didn't know after he was talking over my head. Like I, I almost felt the fence that he was right. Yeah. It took my elders to actually school me to understand the culture I was at and understand where I needed to get to, yeah. to give me what I considered to be free mentorship. Now, if Glenn was my mentor. Ultimately, it still is to the day. It took pre-mentorship for wow. me to come for somebody to, to reach me where I was to bridge yeah. that gap to make that translation between what Glenn had to offer and where I was at, right? To the point where, despite their talks, they even would go to commissary, get cards, like commissary cards, blank cards. They would fill it out. All I had to do was put it into the mailbox. And all it did with Glenn's address, all it said on there was thank you. Mm. It's thank you. So what that said is that, and there was, you know, I did that, but like that was, I mean, I would try to go out to the yard and they would stop me. Nope, you're going out with Glenn. And I'm not thinking of the trek that Glenn had to make leaving his family to come to invest in me. Yeah. But yet when I left, I was able to teach on a graduate level, right? Taught at Columbia, Marymount, LA. Like I taught, you know, University of Pennsylvania, Temple for years, like, you know, whatever the deal is. Still never graduating high school, still couldn't read, write, no, none of that. So because I had a skill set and then all these things. But so what I always say, just like I said it earlier, is like not only are we do we have, you know, in our community, are we not resource poor, yeah. but we're net, we're network poor. 
And not only network in a way, and when we think about networking, we think about networking in a way of looking for charity. Think about that. When people say, oh, networking, you're going to meet people so people can give you something. Mm-hmm. It's not that. My oldest taught me not, it's not that. Networking is literally, you think about yourself as like a battery. And a battery has all this potential, potential difference. But the battery's potential difference is only realized once it's in a circuit, right? The idea is like networking is how do you apply yourself to a circuit so you can be your best self and you can apply to that. So the question then becomes, what do you bring to that? And then in certain cases, most cases, all it is that is asked and needed of you, required of you, is to be present and to make good on those things, right? So again, we don't know that. We're not taught that. You know, I mean, I'm not, and a lot of folks are not, right? Because we can't network ourselves out of our situation. And that is the latter out is networking. So, sorry. No, I love that. I I so appreciate what you said. And I wanted to say this earlier when you said about Dawood and now when you're talking about your elders, you know, shout out to them, right? Like there's something consistent when I hear about old heads, somebody who says, I see you and I'm going to help you in spite of you, (laughs) right? I'm going to help you learn how to shave. I'm going to help you learn what gratitude is. I'm going to help you pre-mentoring, new phrase, love it, right? I'm going to met, I'm going to coach you up to the place where you can be ready to receive what Glenn is, is trying to offer, all right? Not that Glenn is, you know, the end-all, be-all, but it could have been a missed opportunity if without That's the right. pre-mentorship. It and, would have been right. a missed opportunity. And then how many other people never get not only the opportunity, but then the pre-mentor, the pre-mentorship to get them to meet that, that need. Yeah. And I think what happens too, right, on the other side, someone like a Glenn, they feel like they're really pushing themselves and trying, and then they get somebody who hasn't had the pre-mentorship, and then they get discouraged and say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. Versus yeah. now, you get that, you are able to connect, and now you've stayed connected. And I just think that that's just, you know, so powerful of how, and this is anywhere, right? Like, you know, I would encourage anywhere. anybody to think about who is pre-mentoring you right now for that next opportunity. And who are you pre-mentoring? That's who are you mentoring? Again, that's the part about the network. The network is where do you fall at in the, in the scheme of it? Sorry. And again, if you find yourself not networking, or not being a network, then you're more than likely a weight on someone else's network, in my opinion. And again, you know, poverty, you know, and pity is fleeting, right? And pity will only go so far until power shows up, right? And the power is what you derive from this, you know, um, the graces from other folks, right? And being a part of a network. And that's the, that's the toll you, that's the toll you pay. So, and again, that is across, like you said, across the spectrum, not just for people coming in and out of prison, because if this was the case, again, we would never went to prison, right? I, I and so many people would have never had to go to prison, right? Again, my my network now, they're kids. And again, I know when power shows up is when I meet, you know, billionaires or whoever, and they're asking me to mentor their children, mentor their grandson. Yeah. Hey, hey, could you, you know, I want to introduce you to, and it's not a transactional monetary transaction. No, no, not at all. I would refuse a monetary transaction with them. Networking is more than that. It's way worth way more than that. So that's one thing if I would have a sort of amplifying voice is like, how do we see what, how do we identify networking? 
And what yeah. you're doing is that. What you're doing is that's the, how I put your platform in the perspective. It is that. It's exposure, mm-hmm. right? Because again, it's that, you know, you're taking away the, the thought is like someone planning on something unseen. No, it's seen, yeah. right? And not only is seen, but you're introducing people, the people that are doing it and could be that mentorship. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, that bridge out. And that's what we all need for sure. 100%. And I think, you know, for me, it's been, you know, where I see myself in my life and career is that I think you end up being both, right? Like you recognize that, you, and this is my bias, right? The thought of like, at some point you should be both. You should have someone that is always mentoring or pre-mentoring you to the next level while you are mentoring or pre-mentoring somebody else to the next level. You you should be in a sandwich at some level, right? Like where you are, there, there's people on both sides because you just never know. And I, I love what you shared. And that is part of you know this platform is to really highlight that we might look at you and know a part of your story, but we might not know some other parts of the story and hearing about pre-mentoring or hearing about like, it's not a singular story that might open somebody's thoughts and wherever they are, they might be in a mm-hmm. totally different community or context, but it relates. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's, that's one of the reasons, you know, why I do this. So I want to then talk about that. Like, so say more about what, you are doing now and you know i have some other kind of wrap-up questions but where what is it that you do what is it that you would say is your career or profession like Mm -hmm. highlight that please no thank you and thank you for what you do seriously and that is it that's that continuum and that's that's our powerpoint that's our power that's when we're powerful as a people period right as a human species we're not islands we're social being we have mirror neurons for a reason and um, the question then becomes, what are we, what are we mirroring? That, that's the question. So what am I doing? So basically, I'm a filmmaker, right? I do film. We just finished this film. I don't, even, I don't think I shared it with you. So we just filmed, finished this film, or we finished it, and we premiered it at the Kennedy Center in D.C. Uh-huh. back in October. It was really, really awesome. And then we screened it at... Um, Berkeley School of Music in Boston, and then last week we just screened it in um, in Bedford, in Bedford, New York, at Bedford Playhouse. So basically, the film is called Music Vets. It looks at the use of music therapy as a as a non pharmacological treatment for PTSD and TBI with res- traumatic brain injuries with respect to the veterans population, uh, injured service uh, men and women. Um, population. And I think it's a really powerful piece. It took me, it took me and my partner, John, about six years to do. We worked in this film for like six years, man, with the military, with therapists, you know, we were sick. We were about 18 months, um, 18 months of just like researching and meeting with some of the top psychologists and brain surgeons in the world around the topic before we even push record. You know, and then it's a study, not only the film is a study of the power of music and non-traditional treatments for therapy and non, non-traditional approaches to therapy, but it amplifies the individual approach as well. Like, you know, um, and then, um, you know, it also speaks about, again, although the film is about the veteran population, injured veteran, U.S. military veterans, but it's transferable to anyone. You know, and one thing I was going to say that on my psychological evaluation, it was interesting. I was reading recently. That's why I said I had it because I've seen it. 
a psychological evaluation from when I was 17 and was about to be sentenced. You know, in the evaluation, it spoke about how many people up until that point that I seen killed. Mm. How many people that I had shot, that I had admitted to this psychologist about Mm. what I seen, friends I lost, I still have seen. And she says, but I was not committable because I was I was not, I never served in the military. So in that case, I didn't have what she called PTSD. Wow. Again, right. So what are we doing to our kids? What are we doing, right? So how we, how we, and you got to remember too, again, just psychology as a whole. And from what I've learned, this just blew my mind. A number of things we're doing this film is looking at brain science. And it wasn't until 1995 was when they had the first MRI scan of the brain. Like, can you, like 1995? I went to prison in 95. Like, we're talking about, we don't know anything about the brain. Oh, yeah. Like, but yet our institutions, our communities, how many things around brain science and the human experience is built around, like, our built environment and built around, what? Just our judicial system, the laws. Right, yeah. There's that, right? So, so the question, so it just, this film is called Music Vets, and it's a beautiful, beautiful film. goes into brain science. Lightly, but it, it really talks about the human experience and and uh, um, the willingness to live and different paths people are taking to have a life, a new way forward. I definitely want to check it out. I'm fascinated by it. I think it sounds like an amazing project. And just as an aside, you know, I'm bothered and disturbed, but unfortunately, not. This is not new information. I'm not surprised. You're the second person that I've talked to on this podcast that has been incarcerated and gone through that process that talked about the evaluation and therapy experience and how it was not encouraging, not supportive, and not making them want to connect with someone. And then, therefore, this other individual said how it was then harder for him to really trust therapy in general. So you talk about someone, right? Like it is, in my opinion, without a doubt that there's trauma, PTSD, depression, and so much more. And yet somehow, because you're not, uh, you didn't ex- go in the military, that you're excluded from that. Uh, so that to me, just once again, what does that say? If this is the person who evaluates you and writes this report, it makes it then hard to trust people who could be on that position. And so I think there's a lot there. Huge. Yeah, it's huge. And a lot of work can be done. I think that that's what makes it almost, it also makes it exciting, but it also makes it terrifying, right? And then think about what are we doing to human beings, right? And I, I would love to to think and to believe that there's going to come a time when I can, you know, kind of explain to my kids that this is what we used to do to people, you know? It's like, look how horrible it was, right? And, and then we smarten up just, you know, yeah, I always tell my wife, like, the smart people left the room. And she was like, no, the smart people leave the room. You know, the smart people adapted to the room. And right. I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. So it's like, you know, so my work now, not only as a filmmaker, but I, I consult around systems and these kind of things. And the question that becomes, how do I get smart people to think smart, right, about it? And using non-traditional approaches that I'm suggesting to actually look at, you know, look at you know, sentencing guidelines and exposure, I mean, even built environment differently and processes and stuff. So we do a lot of work and still do a lot of work in, in Holland and the Netherlands and, and um, throughout the U.S. 
So yeah, I can go on and on, but yeah, yeah. I love it. So some final questions I like to ask as we wrap up. You have had, you know, an amazing career. You've worked with people, you've taught, you've you've showcased your work in so many places. But if you had a chance to collaborate or work with someone, who would it be? Besides you? Uh, well, look, no, I'm down. Let's go. That's right. Collaborate, work with somebody besides George Talks. Let me see. I, you know, collaborate or work with? Ugh, good question. I mean, this is somebody famous. Is this the set of questions that you asked for? I mean, like, you know your work. It might be someone yeah. I don't even know, but I'm just wondering. Is there someone if you like, oh, I would love to work with this person? Yeah, I mean, there's tons. I think, um, you know, again, I've, I've worked with Oprah and I, I believe in Oprah's mission and work and I would love to do more work with Oprah. I feel like, you know, yeah, but um, let me think who else. I don't know. I think, I don't know. You know, I'm still in there as where I am in my whole trajectory, I feel like I'm still in such an experimental space, you know, and I'm, I'm building and I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm actually trying to, in the process of not only, I'm just trying to encourage systems to kind of wrap around a, a certain mindset and thought process. You know, there, there's some amazing psychologists that I really appreciate and like Bruce Perry and, you know, you know, Bessel van der Kolk and stuff like this. That, I really appreciate their work and a number of other folks too. Uh, Roxanne WRT is not a psychologist, but just like a sociologist. I love her work. Roxanne WRT, she wrote the book, American a People, Indigenous People's History of America. A lot of work around Indigenous People's History. So I, I, mean, I don't know. I'm just, a, I'm a fascinated with brain science. I'm fascinated with like people's behavior and behavior science and also history as well. So it's like, I really would like to apply myself film-wise, you know, intellectually or whatever, align it with folks that are in that same vein to help inform systems. And even exploring, like, ways to get outside of, like, a, a film-structured work. I feel like film itself can be can be neutering and, and not and too traditional for my liking and not effective. I feel like sometimes I love the, the non, non-scripted, just non-edited story of people's stories. I love what you do, like thinking about like, you know, podcasting maybe as a thought too, of just like hearing people talk and just like their, their story, less editing, less, you know, playing God that way. It's like, you know, um, what's his name? Um, what's his name? Uh, Warhol. Uh, Andrew Warhol had this, had this exhibition and this exhibition I've seen in Paris where he has this camera, had this camera set up and he would, just bring his friends over his house and just have him sit in front of the camera, just talk. And the name of it was Everyone's a Star, but the whole thought was everybody has a story and the stories are super fascinating. He was doing it in the 70s, man. You know, and it's super fascinating. No editing involved, no, you know, you don't have yeah. to be a, you know, notable name, none of that. It's just like, his knowledge is infinite and I uh, love to hear people's experience. I love that, man. And, you know, and once again, embedded in this podcast is that there's profound depth in people's stories and and wisdom of like, how did this person navigate, figure out, live? And there's something I can take from that if I open myself to it. Last two questions. What would you, how would you define mental wellness? Regulation. Regulation, 100%. 
you know, regulation. I think what, you know, I think what we, everything is down to regulation, right? Like we're talking about, you know, just balance in whatever way, shape or form that you can find balance, natural balance in the sense of just like how are we limiting our exposures to negative, unhealthy elements, right? Like, you know, how can we have, you know, and people talk about work, work, um, life balance. I think, I think if people do what they love and find joy, I feel like, and have a support system. And I, I feel like that mentorship piece too, right? And again, I feel like as humans, we're, we're social beings. So I feel like being in an environment where you're receiving love, you're giving love and that, that exchange, not necessarily transactional, but just that, that vibe is there. Yeah. And then kids, elders, like right? being in a balanced, regulated state, I think is, um, that's how I define it is just regulation. I love it. And the uh, last question I'd like to ask is, what mental wellness advice would you give to your younger self? And that could be as early as yesterday or any time in the past. Good question. Go sit on George Talks uh, couch <laughs> once a week. That's what I'm telling myself now. But... <laughs> no, um, advice. Man, you know, mental health. You know, and I think about that, thinking about like what the mindset at the time. And I feel like, you know, we interviewed my mom for Polar Gravity when we did Polar Gravity about 10 years ago or so. And I remember interviewing my mom and the question to my mom was like, did L change? Like when he came home from prison, did he change? She was like, he didn't change. And I was supposed to say, mom, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say, no, he changed. He's dead. She said, no, he's the same person, you know? So, I'm thinking of myself in that context. It's like, I feel like I was a good person all along. I think I'm a good person, period. I feel like mental health, I think I did the best what I, what I had, you know? And it was, yeah, so mental health, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know. I think, yeah, that's a, that's a really hard question. Because, again, I would be thinking about something that would be completely not even realistic to that space and time. I could say like, you know, regulation or I could say whatever, but like I was adapted to a space or so those and really. Um... And that's why, you know, I leave it open and it'd be any time, but I hear you, right? Like, were you, what would you have been open to? Like all of those things, you know, we might not even know, right? Like, and so, you know, and I appreciate like your, you know, honesty, you know, about that. Is that like, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Maybe in part two, if something does come up, you'll let me know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about it. Yeah, you know, look, I appreciate you, man, and all that you do. I appreciate how you continue to expand people's minds about how we think about the realities of, of people's lived experiences uh, through film, through conversation, through just being you. And, you know, we didn't fully get here, but I could, I know how that has also shaped how you show up for your family now, right? How you show up for those that you care and love for. And it is because of all of those things that you had to go through. So you spending some time with me and sharing this and being on, on the podcast means a lot. And so I appreciate it. And any last words before we wrap? No, thank you. I would say thank you, man. You were, um, you know, you and, and Dr. J, your wonderful wife, Candace, you know, I, and your family. I think. You know, when I met my wife, you y'all were definitely such inspiration for us, and, and definitely we sat down. And before we got married, right, we had dinner and we sat down and talked about that. And 
some of the things y'all said, like held true. And we've been married almost, this is seven years now. Since I married you, was at our wedding. Too, right? That's right. I still remember. Um, you didn't stay to dance, but that's a different story. No, I think you may have did. I don't know. Oh, I got pictures. You so. did. Yeah, there is pictures somewhere. I like to see those pictures. But no, but, and that, you know, I think, yeah, thank you, man. And I think this is as powerful as it is. And I think it, it should be. I think it falls in line with who you are. And I feel like, and what you find important and what you find necessary is that bridging that gap and making information available, readily available, common people and or people that aren't necessarily as common, but bringing them to a space, a common place where people can actually access them and access the information in a palatable way. So thank you for being you and doing what you do. And uh, yeah, anywhere I can support, let me know. Hey man, look, I appreciate you. And yeah, we, there's lots of things, lots of things I think that we can continue to talk about and work on and, and even, you know, hopefully collaborate. So I appreciate you being here and you sharing and uh, just thanks, man. Thank you, sir. Wow. What an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the Leapcast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.